to the second episode of Go to Sleep. I'm Arik. So I mentioned last time that the reason I was doing this podcast was in large part to help my fiance go to sleep. She loves it when I read to her and I'm not always around to do that. And so I started this podcast at least in large part so that she could listen to it when she was falling asleep. And on that note, I have good news to report. She's listened to the first episode, I don't even know how many times now, and it seems like it's working. So, good news, she's fallen asleep. I am boring enough to put her to sleep, so that's good. Um, this time on the show, uh, I'm going to tell you all a story. So, um, my fiance's cousin is currently visiting us, and it's her first time in the United States and her first time in San Francisco. And so we decided uh, she wanted to go see the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art here in San Francisco. And I had actually not been since they finished remodeling it. Uh, my girlfriend, my fiance, excuse me, she's uh, she had been once, I believe, to the newly remodeled, but they had just reopened, I don't know, last year or something, after a few years of being closed. And they dramatically increased the size of the museum. So... We decided to go check it out, and we checked it out yesterday. So, um, it was great. We took the ferry. We actually live in Oakland, not in San Francisco. And we took the ferry from Jack London Square to the ferry building and then walked to the MoMA. And uh, it's always wonderful to take the ferry. Ferry, ferry rides are, are magical. It's, like, way better than, than BART or... Any kind of subway system, ferries are just the, the best. So well, we took the ferry over, we went to the MoMA, and um, as we were getting ready to buy tickets, uh, we realized that the, um, the cost of uh, tickets for three people for the day was more than double, or more than half, I should say, of what the cost, almost like two-thirds of the cost of a yearly membership for two people with two guests. So we did that instead. So now... My fiance and I are each members of the SF MoMA, and uh, we only have to go like one more time this year, this year starting now, and it will have paid for itself. So that's pretty great. I'm really excited to to go. I think when you're when you're a member of a place like that, you can just go and you can just walk around one floor, and then leave. There isn't the same pressure to to see everything or to do everything, which is really nice. So in that spirit, we, we wandered around a little more than that yesterday because we were with the cousin who, this was her only opportunity to go. And uh, and we saw quite a bunch, bit of stuff. And man, they have really, really improved that place. The The new size is, is impressive and there's just so much to see. So we saw a bunch of really great stuff. I always like visiting the Rothkos. I'm a huge fan of Rothko. Um, and, but we also saw some really amazing uh, media installations. One just was like a pool of water, and in the water were like these slowly moving ceramic pots, I guess you would say, or, or, or bowls. And every once in a while they would hit each other, and when they would, they would make a ding noise like a, uh, like a bell. And the dinging noise was what was creating the the music of this piece. It was really, really wonderful. And um, my fiance is actually uh, just getting back into being a ceramicist. So 
for her, I think it was especially wonderful, but also really interesting for me. But even more interesting for me in the next room over was a bunch of wires that were using extremely strong magnets and headphones to produce like odd frequencies, like distorted sort of the, the, the sounds you get from moving amps too close to each other or things like that. And I, that's just the kind of thing I love. I, I'm, I have a long history of making electronic music. And, and so it's like, I've actually spent a lot of my life trying to make those sounds. So just wandering around and hearing them was, was pretty great. But the best thing by far that I saw yesterday at the MoMA was a piece by an Icelandic artist, uh, whose name I, I have here. Let me see what it is. The name is Ragnar that's not right. The name is Ragnar Kjartansson, and it's an Icelandic art, a project called The Visitors from 2012. And what it is is it's it's nine video screens with projectors, uh, each showing, uh, or eight of them showing musicians in different rooms of a, of a house in New York, and each playing a song together, even though they're not in the same room together. And each screen has the that room, and then each speaker above the screen has that audio channel. So as you walk around the room, you hear different pieces of the song. The song is something like an hour long, and it is absolutely incredible. The it, it, It's hard to even describe how awesome and amazing it is. There's so much going on, so much to see. It is, it's just wonderful. Um, you know, I walked around, as did my fiance, and to hear different things and see different things. But honestly, I could go back nine more times and just watch each individual screen for the entire time. And, and maybe I will now that I'm a member. But it was, it was just wonderful. The song was great. The, the project was incredible. And, and I think in many ways, my favorite part of it was, besides all the interactions between the people walking between the different screens, which was really nice, was the was the way that the sound worked, where you only really focused on whoever whoever screens you were by. And the room was set up in such a way that you kind of were forced to kind of walk around and hear different things. And it, it created a lot of accidental moments of meaning. It was it was just really, really wonderful. Um, so I'm definitely looking forward to many more trips to the MoMA. Uh, really getting the time to take it all in and, and explore it. It's a, it's a great thing. I'm super happy that we became members. All right, so this time on the show, I'm going to read from A Treaty of Human Nature by David Hume. So we're going to start with book one, The Understanding, part one of ideas, their origin, composition, Connection, Abstraction, etc. Section 1 of The Origin of Our Ideas All the perceptions of the human mind resolve themselves into two distinct kinds, which I shall call impressions and ideas. The difference betwixt these consists in the degrees of force and liveliness with which they strike upon the mind and make their way into our thought or consciousness. Those perceptions, 
which enter with most force and violence, we may name impressions. And under this name I comprehend all our sensations, passions, and emotions as they make their first appearance in the soul. By ideas, I mean the faint images of these in thinking and reasoning, such as, for instance, are all the perceptions excited by the present discourse, excepting only those which arise from the sight and touch, and accepting the immediate pleasure or uneasiness it may occasion. I believe it will not be very necessary to employ many words in explaining this distinction. Every one of himself will readily perceive the difference betwixt feeling and thinking. The common degrees of these are easily distinguished, though it is not impossible, but in particular instances they may very nearly approach to each other. Thus in sleep, in a fever, in madness, or in any very violent emotions of soul, our ideas may approach to our impressions. As on the other hand, it sometimes happens that our impressions are so faint and low that we cannot distinguish them from our ideas. But notwithstanding this near resemblance in a few instances, they are in general so very different that no one can make a scruple to rank them under distinct heads and assign to each a peculiar name to mark the difference. There is another division of our perceptions, which it will be convenient to observe, and which extends itself both to our impressions and ideas. This division is into simple and complex. Simple perceptions or impressions and ideas are such as admit of no distinction nor separation. The complex are the contrary to these and may be distinguished into parts. Though a particular color, taste, and smell are qualities all united together in this apple, it is easy to perceive they are not the same, but are at least distinguishable from each other. Having by these divisions given an order and arrangement to our subjects, we may now apply ourselves to consider with the more accuracy their qualities and relations. The first circumstance that strikes my eye is the great resemblance betwixt our impressions and ideas in every other particular, except their degree of force and vivacity. The one seems to be in a manner the reflection of the other, so that all the perceptions of the mind are double, and appear both as impressions and ideas. When I shut my eyes and think of my chamber, the ideas I form are exact representations of the impressions I felt, nor is there any circumstance of the one which is not to be found in the other. In running over my other perceptions, I find still the same resemblance and representation. Ideas and impressions appear always to correspond to each other. This circumstance seems to me remarkable, and engages my attention for a moment. Upon a more accurate survey, I find I have been carried away too far by the first appearance, and that I must make use of the distinction of perceptions into simple and complex to limit this general decision that all our ideas and impressions are resembling. I observe that many of our complex ideas never had impressions that corresponded to them, and that many of our complex impressions never are exactly copied in ideas. I can imagine to myself such a city as the New Jerusalem, whose pavement is gold and walls are rubies, though I never saw any such. I have seen Paris, but shall I affirm I can form such an idea of that city as will perfectly represent all its streets and houses in their real and just proportions? I perceive, therefore, that though there is a general in general a great resemblance betwixt our complex impressions and ideas, yet the rule is not universally true that they are exact copies of each other. We may next consider how the case stands with our simple perceptions. After the most accurate examination, 
of which I am capable, I venture to affirm that the rule here holds without any exception, and that every simple idea has a simple impression which resembles it, and every simple impression a correspondent idea. That idea of red, which we form in the dark, and that impression which strikes our eyes in sunshine, differ only in degree, not in nature. That the case is the same with all our simple impressions and ideas, it is impossible to prove by a particular enumeration of them. Every one may satisfy himself in this point by running over as many as he pleases. But if any one should deny this universal resemblance, I know no way of convincing him, but by desiring him to shew a simple impression that has not a correspondent idea, or a simple idea that has not a correspondent impression. If he does not answer this challenge, as it is certain he cannot, we may from his silence and our own observation establish our conclusion. Thus we find that all simple ideas and impressions resemble each other, and as the complex are formed from them, we may affirm in general that these two species of perception are exactly correspondent. Having discovered this relation, which requires no farther examination, I am curious to find some other of their qualities. Let us consider how they stand with regard to their existence, and which of the impressions and ideas are causes, and which effects. The full examination of this question is the subject of the present treatise, and therefore we shall here content ourselves with establishing one general proposition, that all our simple ideas, in their first appearance, are derived from simple impressions, which are correspondent to them, and which they exactly represent. In seeking for phenomena to prove this proposition, I find only one of, the, of two kinds, but in each kind the phenomena are obvious, numerous, and conclusive. I first make myself certain, by a new review of what I have already asserted, that every simple impression is attendant with a correspondent idea, and every simple idea with a correspondent impression. From this constant conjunction of resembling perceptions, I immediately conclude that there is a great connection betwixt our correspondent impressions and ideas, and that the existence of the one has a considerable influence upon that of the other. Such a constant conjunction, in such an infinite number of instances, can never arise from chance, but clearly proves the dependence of the impressions on the ideas, or of the ideas on the impressions. That I may know on which side this dependence lies, I consider the order of their first appearance, and find by constant experience that the simple impressions always take the precedence of their correspondent ideas, but never appear in the contrary order. To give a child an idea of scarlet, or orange, of sweet, or bitter, I present the objects, or in other words, convey to him these impressions, but proceed not so absurdly as to endeavor to produce the impressions by exciting the ideas. Our ideas upon their appearance produce not their correspondent impressions, nor do we perceive any color or feel any sensation merely upon thinking of them. On the other hand, we find that any impression either of the mind or body is constantly followed by an idea, which resembles it, and is only different in the degrees of force and liveliness. The constant conjunction of our resembling perceptions is a convincing proof that the one are the causes of the other, and this priority of the impressions is an equal proof that our impressions are the causes of our ideas, not our ideas of our impressions. To confirm this, I consider another plain and convincing phenomenon, which is that, wherever by any accident the faculties, which give rise to any impressions, are obstructed in their operations, as when one is born blind or deaf, not only do the impressions are lost, but also their correspondent ideas, so that there never appear in the mind the least traces of either of them. Nor is this only true where the organs of sensation are entirely destroyed, 
but likewise where they have never been put in action to produce a particular impression. We cannot form to ourselves a just idea of the taste of a pineapple without having actually tasted it. There is, however, one contradictory phenomenon which may prove that it is not absolutely impossible for ideas to go before their correspondent impressions. I believe it will readily be allowed that the several distinct ideas of colors which enter by the eyes, or those of sounds which are conveyed by the hearing, are really different from each other, though at the same time resembling. Now if this be true of different colors, it must be no less so of the different shades of the same color, that each of them produces a distinct idea independent of the rest. For if this should be denied, it is possible, by the continual gradation of shades, to run a color insensibly into what is most remote from it, and if you will not allow any of the means to be different, you cannot without absurdity deny the extreme colors of all kinds, excepting one particular shade of blue, for instance, which it has never has been his fortune to meet with. Let all the different shades of that color, except that single one, be placed before him, descending gradually from the deepest to the lightest. It is plain that he will perceive a blank, where that shade is wanting. Said will be sensible that there is a greater distance in that place betwixt the contiguous colors than in any other. Now I ask whether it is possible for him from his own imagination to supply this deficiency and raise up to himself the idea of that particular shade, though it had never been conveyed to him by his senses. I believe there are few, but will be of opinion that he can, and this may serve as a proof that the simple ideas are not always derived from the correspondent impressions, though the instance is so particular and singular that it is scarce worth our observing and does not merit that for it alone we should alter our general maxim. But besides this exception, it may not be amiss to remark on this head that the principle of the priority of impressions to ideas must be understood with another limitation, viz. that as our ideas are images of our impressions, so we can form secondary ideas, which are images of the primary, as appears from this very reasoning concerning them. This is not, properly speaking, an exception to the rule so much as an explanation of it. Ideas produce the images of themselves in new ideas, but as the first ideas are supposed to be derived from impressions, it still remains true that all our simple ideas proceed either meditatively or immediately from their correspondent impressions. This, then, is the first principle I establish in the science of human nature, nor ought we to despise it because of the simplicity of its appearance. For it is remarkable that the present question concerning the precedency of our impressions or ideas is the same with what has made so much noise in other terms when it has been disputed whether there be any innate ideas or whether all ideas be derived from sensation and reflection. We may observe that in order to prove the ideas of extension and color not to be innate, philosophers do nothing but shew that they are conveyed by our senses. To prove the ideas of passion and desire not to be innate, they observe that we have a preceding experience of these emotions in ourselves. Now, if we carefully examine these arguments, we shall find that they prove nothing, but that ideas are preceded by other more lively perceptions, from which they are derived, and which they represent. I hope this clear stating of the question will remove all disputes concerning it, and win render this principle of more use in our reasonings than it seems hitherto to have been. Section 2. Division of the Subject Since it appears that our simple impressions are prior to their correspondent ideas, and that the exceptions are very rare, method seems to require we should examine our impressions before we consider our ideas. 
impressions may be divided into two kinds, those of sensation and those of reflection. The first kind arises in the soul originally from unknown causes. The second is derived in a great measure from our ideas, and that in the following order. An impression first strikes upon the senses and makes us perceive heat or cold, thirst or hunger, pleasure or pain of some kind or other. Of this impression there is a copy taken by the mind, which remains after the impression ceases, and this we call an idea. This idea of pleasure or pain, when it returns upon the soul, produces the new impressions of desire and aversion, hope and fear, which may properly be called impressions of reflection because derived from it. These again are copied by the memory and imagination and become ideas, which perhaps in their turn give rise to other impressions and ideas, so that the impressions of reflection are only antecedent to their correspondent ideas, but posterior to those of sensation and derived from them. The examination of our sensations belongs more to anatomists and natural philosophers than to moral, and therefore shall not at present be entered upon. And as the impressions of reflection, viz. passions, desires, and emotions, which principally deserve our attention, arise mostly from ideas, it will be necessary to reverse that method, which at first sight seems most natural, and in order to explain the nature and principles of the human mind, give a particular account of ideas before we proceed to impressions. For this reason I have here chosen to begin with ideas. Section 3 of the Ideas of the Memory and Imagination We find by experience that when any impression has been present with the mind, it again makes its appearance there as an idea, and this it may do after two different ways, either when in its new appearance it retains a considerable degree of its first vivacity, and is somewhat intermediate betwixt an impression and an idea, or when it entirely loses that vivacity and is a perfect idea. The faculty by which we repeat our impressions in the first manner is called the memory, and the other, the imagination. It is evident at first sight that the ideas of the memory are much more lively and strong than those of the imagination, and that the former faculty paints its objects in more distinct colors than any which are employed by the latter. When we remember any past event, the idea of it flows in upon the mind in a forceful manner, whereas in the imagination the perception is faint and languid, and cannot without difficulty be preserved by the mind steady and uniform for any considerable time. Here, then, is a sensible difference betwixt one species of ideas and another, but of this more fully hereafter. There is another difference betwixt these two kinds of ideas, which is no less evident, namely that though neither the ideas of the memory nor imagination, neither the lively nor faint ideas can make their appearance in the mind, unless their correspondent impressions have gone before to prepare the way for them, yet the imagination is not restrained to the same order and form with the original impressions, while the memory is in a manner tied down in that respect without any power of variation. It is evident that the memory preserves the original form in which its objects were presented, and that wherever we depart from it in recollecting anything, it proceeds from some defect or imperfection in that faculty. A historian may, perhaps, for the more convenient carrying on of his narration, relate an event before another, to which it was in fact posterior. But then he takes notice of this disorder, if he be exact, and by that means replaces the idea in its due position. It is the same case in our recollection of those places and persons with which we were formerly acquainted. The chief exercise of the memory is not to preserve the simple ideas, but their order and position. In short, this principle is supported by such a number of phenomena and common vulgar phenomena that we may spare ourselves the trouble of insisting on it any further. 
The same evidence follows us in our second principle, of the liberty of the imagination to transpose and change its ideas. The fables we meet with in poems and romances put this entirely out of the question. Nature there is totally confounded, and nothing mentioned but winged horses, fiery dragons, and monstrous giants. Nor will this liberty of the fancy appear strange when we consider that all our ideas are copied from our impressions, and that there are not any two impressions which are perfectly inseparable. Not to mention that this is an evident consequence of the division of ideas into simple and complex. Wherever the imagination perceives a difference among ideas, it can easily produce a separation. Section 4 of the Connection or Association of Ideas As all simple ideas may be separated by the imagination and may be united again in what form it pleases, nothing would be more unaccountable than the operations of that faculty were it not guided by some universal principles which render it in some measure uniform with itself in all times and places. Were ideas entirely loose and unconnected, chance alone would join them, and it is impossible the same simple ideas should fall regularly into complex ones, as they commonly do, without some bond of union among them, some associating quality by which one idea naturally introduces another. This uniting principle among ideas is not to be considered as an inseparable connection, for that has been already excluded from the imagination. Nor yet are we to conclude that without it the mind cannot join two ideas, for nothing is more free than the faculty, but we are only to regard it as gentle force, which commonly prevails, and is the cause why, among other things, languages so nearly correspond to each other, nature in a manner pointing out to every one those simple ideas which are most proper to be united in a complex one. The qualities from which this association arises, and by which the mind is after this manner conveyed from one idea to another, are three, viz. resemblance, contiguity in time or place, and cause and effect. I believe it will not be very necessary to prove that these qualities produce an association among ideas and upon the appearance of one idea naturally introduce another. It is plain that in the course of our thinking and in the constant revolution of our ideas, our imagination runs easily from one idea to any other that resembles it, and that this quality alone is to the fancy a sufficient bond and association. It is likewise evident that as the senses, in changing their objects, are necessary are necessitated to change them regularly, and take them as they lie contiguous to each other. The imagination must by long custom acquire the same method of thinking, and run along the parts of space and time in conceiving its objects. As to the connection, that is made by the relation of cause and effect, we shall have occasion afterwards to examine it to the bottom, and therefore shall not present insist upon it. It is sufficient to observe that there is no relation which produces a stronger connection in the fancy and makes one idea more readily recall another than the relation of cause and effect betwixt their objects. That we may understand the full extent of these relations, we must consider that two objects are connected together in the imagination, not only when the one is immediately resembling, contiguous to, or the cause of the other, but also when there is interposed betwixt them a third object, which bears to both of them any of these relations. This may be carried on to a great length, though at the same time we may observe that each remove considerably weakens the relation. Cousins in the fourth degree are connected by causation, if I may be allowed to use that term, but not so closely as brothers, much less as child and parent. In general, we may observe that all the relations of blood depend upon cause and effect, and are esteemed near or remote, according to the number of connection causes interposed betwixt the persons. 
Of the three relations above mentioned, this of causation is the most extensive. Two objects may be considered as placed in this relation, as well when one is the cause of any of the actions or motions of the other, as when the former is the cause of the existence of the latter. For as that action or motion is nothing but the object itself, considered in a certain light, and as the object continues the same in all its different situations, it is easy to imagine how such an influence of objects upon one another may connect them in the imagination. We may carry this farther and remark, not only that two objects are connected by the relation of cause and effect, when the one produces a motion or any action in the other, but also when it has a power of producing it. And this we may observe to be the source of all the relation of interest and duty by which men influence each other in society and are placed in the ties of government, and all the relation of interest and duty and subordination. A master is such a one as by his situation, arising either from force or agreement, has a power of directing in certain particulars the actions of another, whom we call servant. A judge is one who in all disputed cases can fix by his opinion the possession or particulars the actions of another, whom we call servant. When a person is possessed of any power, there is no more required to convert it into action, but the exertion of the will, and that in every case is considered as possible, and in many as probable, especially in the case of authority, where the obedience of the subject is a pleasure and advantage to the superior. These are therefore the principles of union or cohesion among our simple ideas, and in the imagination supply the place of that inseparable connection by which they are united in our memory. Here is a kind of attraction, which in the mental world will be found to have as extraordinary effects as in the natural, and to shew itself in as many and as various forms. Its effects are everywhere conspicuous, but as to its causes they are mostly unknown, and must be resolved into original qualities of human nature which I pretend not to explain. Nothing is more requisite for a true philosopher than to restrain the intemperate desire of searching into causes, and having established any doctrine upon a sufficient number of experiments, rest contented with that, when he sees a farther examination, would lead him into obscure and uncertain speculations. In that case, his inquiry would be much better employed in examining the effects than the causes of his principle. Amongst the effects of this union or association of ideas, there are none more remarkable than those complex ideas which are the common subjects of our thought and reasoning, and generally arise from some principle of union among our simple ideas. These complex ideas may be divided into relations, modes, and substances. We shall briefly examine each of these in order, and shall subjoin some considerations concerning our general and particular ideas before we leave the present subject, which may be considered as the elements of this philosophy. Section 5. Of relations. The word relation is commonly used in two senses considerably different from each other, either for that quality by which two ideas are connected together in the imagination, and the one naturally introduces the other, after the manner above explained, or for that particular circumstance in which, even upon the arbitrary union of two ideas in the fancy, we may think proper to compare them. In common language the former is always the sense in which we use the word relation, and it is only in philosophy that we extend it to mean any particular subject of comparison without a connecting principle. Thus distance will be allowed by philosophers to be a true relation, because we acquire an idea of it by the comparing of objects. But in a common way we say that nothing can be more distant than such or such things from each other, nothing can have less relation, as if distance and relation were incompatible. 
It may perhaps be esteemed an endless task to enumerate all those qualities which makes objects admit of comparison, and by which the ideas of philosophical relation are produced. But if we diligently consider them, we shall find that without difficulty they may be comprised under seven general heads, which may be considered as the sources of all philosophical relation. The first is resemblance, and this is a relation without which no philosophical relation can exist, since no objects will admit of comparison but what have some degree of resemblance. But though resemblance be necessary to all philosophical relation, it does not follow that it always produces a connection or association of ideas. When equality becomes very general, and is common to a great many individuals, it leads not the mind directly to any one of them, but by presenting at once too great a choice, does thereby prevent the imagination from fixing on any single object. Identity may be esteemed a second species of relation. This relation I here consider as applied in its strictest sense to constant, unchangeable objects, without examining the nature and foundation of personal identity, which shall find its place afterwards. Of all relations, the most universal is that of identity, being common to every being whose existence has any duration. After identity, the most universal and comprehensive relations are those of space and time, which are the sources of an infinite number of comparisons, such as distant, contiguous, above, below, before, after, etc. All of those objects which admit of quantity or number may be compared to that particular, which is another very fertile source of relation. When any two objects possess the same quality in common, the degrees in which they possess it form a fifth species of relation. Thus of two objects which are both heavy, the one may be either of greater or less weight than the other. Two colors that are of the same kind may yet be of different shades, and in that respect admit of comparison. The relation of contrariety may at first sight be regarded as an exception to the rule, that no relation of any kind can subsist without some degree of resemblance. But let us consider that no two ideas are in themselves contrary except those of existence and non-existence, which are plainly resembling, as implying both of them an idea of an object, though the latter excludes the object from all time and places in which it is supposed not to exist. All other objects, such as fire and water, heat and cold, are only found to be contrary from experience and from the contrariety of their causes or effects, which relation of cause and effect is a seventh philosophical relation, as well as a natural one. The resemblance implied in this relation shall be explained afterwards. It might naturally be expected that I should join difference to the other relations, but that I consider rather as a negative of relation than as anything real or positive. Difference is of two kinds as opposed either to identity or resemblance. The first is called a difference of number, the other of kind. Section 6. Of Modes and Substances. I would fain ask those philosophers who found so much of their reasonings on the distinction of substance and accident, and imagine we have clear ideas of each, whether the idea of substance be derived from the impressions of sensation or of reflection. If it be conveyed to us by our senses, I ask, which of them, and after what manner? If it be perceived by the eyes, it must be a color, if by the ears a sound, if by the palate a taste, and so of the other senses. But I believe none will assert that substance is either a color, or sound, or taste. The idea of substance must therefore be derived from an impression of reflection, if it really exist. But the impressions of reflection resolve themselves into our passions and emotions, none of which can possibly represent a substance. We have therefore no idea of substance, distinct from that of a collection of particular qualities, nor have we any other meaning when we either talk or reason concerning it. The idea of a substance, as well as that of a mode, is nothing but a collection of simple ideas 
that are united by the imagination and have a particular name assigned to them, by which we are able to recall either to ourselves or others that collection. But the difference betwixt these ideas consists in this, that the particular qualities which form a substance are commonly referred to an unknown something in which they are supposed to inhere, or granting this fiction should not take place, are at least supposed to be closely and inseparably connected by the relations of contiguity and causation. The effect of this is, that whatever new simple quality we discover to have the same connection with the rest, we immediately comprehend it among them, even though it did not enter into the first conception of the substance. Thus our idea of gold may at first be a yellow color, weight, malleableness, fusibility, but upon the discovery of its dissolubility in aqua regia, we join that to the other qualities, and suppose it to belong to the substance as much as if its idea had from the beginning made a part of the compound one. The principle of union being regarded as the chief part of the complex idea gives entrance to whatever quality afterwards occurs, and is equally comprehended by it, as are the others which first presented themselves. That this cannot take place in modes is evident from considering their mature. The simple ideas of which modes are formed either represent qualities which are not united by contiguity and causation, but are dispersed in different subjects, or if they be all united together, the uniting principle is not regarded as the foundation of the complex idea. The idea of a dance is an instance of the first kind of modes, that of beauty of the second. The reason is obvious. Why such complex ideas cannot receive any new idea without changing the name, which distinguishes the mode. Section 7 of Abstract Ideas A very material question has been started concerning abstract or general ideas, whether they be general or particular in the mind's conception of them. A great philosopher has disputed the received opinion in this particular, and has asserted that all general ideas are nothing but particular ones, annexed to a certain term, which gives them a more extensive signification, and makes them recall upon occasion other, than other individuals which are similar to them. As I look upon this to be one of the greatest and most valuable discoveries that has been made of late years in the Republic of Letters, I shall here endeavor to confirm it by some arguments, which I hope will put it beyond all doubt and controversy. It is evident that in forming most of our general ideas, if not all of them, we abstract from every particular degree of quantity and quality, and that an object ceases not to be of any particular species on account of every small alteration in its extension, duration, and other properties. It may therefore be thought that here is a plain dilemma that decides concerning the nature of those abstract ideas which have afforded so much speculation to philosophers. The abstract idea of a man represents men of all sizes and all qualities, which it is concluded it cannot do, but either by representing at once all possible sizes and all possible qualities, or by representing no particular one at all. Now it having been esteemed absurd to defend the former proposition as implying an infinite capacity in the mind, it has been commonly inferred in favor of the latter, and our abstract ideas have been supposed to represent no particular degree either of quantity or quality. But that this inference is erroneous, I shall endeavor to make appear, first by proving that it is utterly impossible to conceive any quantity or quality without forming a precise notion of its degrees, and secondly by showing that though the capacity of the mind be not infinite, yet we can at once form a notion of all possible degrees of quantity and quality in such a manner at least as however imperfect, may serve all the purposes of reflection and conversation. To begin with the first proposition, that the mind cannot form any notion of quantity or quality without forming a precise notion of degrees of each, we may prove this by the three following arguments. 
First, we have observed that whatever objects are different are distinguishable, and that whatever objects are distinguishable are separable by the thought and imagination. And we may here add that these propositions are equally true in the inverse, and that whatever objects are separable are also distinguishable, and that whatever objects are distinguishable are also different. For how is it possible we can separate what is not distinguishable, or distinguish what is not different? In order, therefore, to know whether abstraction implies a separation, we need only consider it in this view and examine whether all the circumstances which we abstract from in our general ideas be such as are distinguishable and different from those which we retain as essential parts of them. But it is evident at first sight that the precise length of a line is not different nor distinguishable from the line itself, nor the precise degree of any quality from the quality. These ideas, therefore, admit no more of separation than they do of distinction and difference. They are consequently conjoined with each other in the conception and the general idea of a line, notwithstanding all our abstractions and refinements, has in its appearance in the mind a precise degree of quantity and quality, however it may be made to represent others which have different degrees of both. Secondly, it is contest that no object can appear in the senses, or in other words, that no oppression can become present in the mind without being determined in its degrees both of quantity and quality. The confusion in which impressions are sometimes involved proceeds only from their faintness and unsteadiness, not from any capacity in the mind to receive any impression which in its real existence has no particular degree nor proportion. That is a contradiction in terms, and even applies the flattest of all contradictions, viz. that it is possible for the same thing both to be and not to be. Now since all ideas are derived from impressions, and are nothing but copies and representations of them, whatever is true of the one must be acknowledged concerning the other. Impressions and ideas differ only in their strength and vivacity, the foregoing conclusion is not founded on any particular degree of vivacity. It cannot therefore be affected by any variation in that particular. An idea is a weaker impression, and as a strong impression, must necessarily have a determined quantity and quality, the case must be the same with its copy or representative. Thirdly, it is a principle generally received in philosophy that everything in nature is individual, and that it is utterly absurd to suppose a triangle really existent which has no precise proportion of sides and angles. If this therefore be absurd in fact and reality, it must also be absurd in idea, since nothing of which we can form a clear and distinct idea is absurd and impossible. But to form the idea of an object, and to form an idea simply, is the same thing, the reference of the idea to an object being an extraneous denomination of which in itself bears no mark or character. Now as it is impossible to form an idea of an object that is possessed of quantity and quality, and yet is possessed of no precise degree of either, it follows that there is an equal impossibility of forming an idea that is not limited and confined in both of these particulars. Abstract ideas are therefore in and themselves individual, however they may become general in their representation. The image in the mind is only that of a particular object, that the application of it in our reasoning be the same as if it were universal. All right, I'm going to stop there for now. Therefore, end this second episode of Go to Sleep. Good night, everybody. Due to the arduous devotion of years to education and science, it is not my intention to refer here to other well-known names in scientific literature, but I may pause for an instant to mention the fact that one of the earliest scientific writers of eminence, who was a Canadian by birth and education, was Mr. Elkanah Billings, paleontologist and geologist, who contributed his first papers to the citizen of Ottawa, then Bytown, 
afterwards to have greatness thrown upon it and made the political capital of Canada. That's the end of the first episode of Go to Sleep. Thank you, and good night.